When Jesus was with his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked them a question. He said, who do men say that I am? And they began to give their answers one by one. They said, some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah the prophet. Some say that you are Jeremiah. Some say you're that prophet. And they each went around and they gave their answers as Jesus listened to what they said. Then Jesus pointed the question directly at them. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke first and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus basically gave Peter affirmation that he was correct in what he said. And the conversation went on. But I love that interaction that Jesus had with his disciples there. Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation himself. He wasn't discouraged and needing to find out how the crowds were responding to his ministry. But rather, he had a reason for asking that question. And it teaches us as we listen to the answer. Some of the people there said, John the Baptist, others Jeremiah, some Elijah. Now why did they give those various answers? The answer is this. It's because when the common person looked at Jesus, heard his words, or saw what he did, or just observed his presence, there was something about him that resonated with what they knew about those Old Testament saints and characters. Some looked at Jesus and they were reminded of what they saw in John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And so they said, hey, he reminds us of that. But then Jesus says, well, who do you say? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, here's the point of all this. Is that every Old Testament character that's held up for us on the pages of Scripture in some way reflected a single facet of the divine diamond that was Christ. See, he encapsulated all of the good that was demonstrated through all of those that served God through the ages past. He was the summation of all of it. And that's why some would see different things that reminded them of characters that really were so opposite of one another. Well, the same thing holds true as we look at these judges here in the book of Judges. You recall that the word judges isn't implying someone wearing a black robe and carrying a gavel. But rather, more accurately, it could be translated heroes or deliverers. Because these were men or women that God raised up for the purpose of delivering his people in a time of their affliction or their need. And so as we look at these judges, we see the men and who they were. But we also see things that remind us, point to, reflect who Jesus himself was. And as we look at chapter 10 and chapter 11 tonight... We're going to see three more judges, and we're going to see how they reflect and demonstrate more of who Jesus is to us for our understanding. And so we begin in chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. If you are looking for baby names, there's a few great suggestions for you right there. A man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shemir in the mountains of Ephraim, and he judged Israel for 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shemir. Now, there are some scholars who, you know, study the word and give commentary on it that have segregated the judges into two categories. They've called some of the judges minor judges and some of the judges major judges. 
And the significance behind those two titles is not that some were less important or less impacting than some of the others, but rather it's just based upon the size and scope of what is written about them. Tola would be one that would be categorized as a minor judge. Not because he was minor, because he wasn't minor. We see there that he ruled for 23 years. And that's actually three years longer than Samson. So why is it that when we study a judge like Samson, we have chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of testimony, but yet when we look at a judge like Tola, there's only two verses. Why is it that that happens? And here's the answer. It's because Tola stayed out of trouble. (laughs) As we look at the judges of whom there is much written, we see that there's much for us to learn, and usually it's by way of warning of what not to do. With this man Tola, we don't see that at all. And so he becomes for us an example of someone who just served and had quiet, successful leadership. The only thing it tells us about him is that he saved Israel. In the King James Bible, it uses the word, he defended Israel. And that's basically what the word means. And that's an important and significant thing that needs to be done. He kept Israel in a place of safety, in a place of security and walking with the Lord with integrity and there was no drama during his life. Now by way of application for you and I, first of all, that is exactly what Jesus does for us. Jesus said that he was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And yes, it is the responsibility of a shepherd to feed a flock and to tend a flock, but it is also his responsibility to defend the flock, to keep us from infection from affliction, and from attack of those things that would come at us from the outside. And Jesus does that. And I believe it's probably one of the most overlooked facets of what our great shepherd does for us. We have no idea the things that God defends us from that we won't know about until we get to heaven. Oftentimes we have frustrations. Things happen to us, setbacks, and we don't understand why those things are happening. But in his sovereign eye... He sees the whole scope of our lives from the beginning all the way to the end. And someday we'll realize that some of the things that happened to us or didn't happen to us were that he was doing just that, defending us from something that we didn't even know that he was doing. And so our shepherd does that. It's also worthy of mention that the ministry of defense, as we see pictured in Tola, is a very essential part of what we're to be as the church in our world in our days. Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth. What salt does in that context is that it preserves. And we have a ministry of preservation just in our existence here on this earth. We're to hold the line of what is truth. We're not to turn to the left or to the right, but we're to defend it. And the Bible tells us that over and over again. Sometimes I think we fall into the trap as Christians of thinking that just because we lead a quiet life that's free of drama and that we're not out there leading thousands and thousands of people to Christ or doing great things for God, that that makes us less significant in the eyes of God. And that's not true. Because Tola was as much a deliverer as Samson. In fact, probably he was even more because he didn't have the drama and the setbacks that Samson had. Same thing's true for us. There's no shame in leading a quiet life defending our family, serving the Lord in quietness, in humility and simplicity. 
God honors that. And it's held up uh, before us in this man, Tola. We go on in verse 3 to the next judge. It says, And after him arose Jair, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel for 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they also had 30 towns, which are called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Canaan. Now, this is another quiet and somewhat minor of the judges. We're told that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys that each had 30 villages. Now, by way of practical application, he must have been quite a wealthy man. In those days, a donkey was equivalent to, in our day, a BMW or you know, even maybe an old Chevelle. But nevertheless, he was able to provide vehicles for 30 of his sons and also to give each of them oversight over a village. And so this man was probably a little bit well off. And it gives to us maybe a little bit of insight into what things were like in Israel in these days. After 23 years of Tola, the economy was cooking. Things were going pretty well. And so it was well for them. By way of spiritual observation, what we see is here's a guy who's able to make 30 carbon copies of himself. It's a picture of discipleship and parenting. Is that he's able to take his kids and invest in them everything that he himself is and has and equip them in such a way that they're able then to go and oversee a whole village and partake in the leadership themselves. And it seems like it's a small thing, just a couple of verses about this man, but what he did is absolutely huge. What we see throughout Scripture is that it's very rare that the faith of one generation carries on into the lives of the next, at least without some serious erosion, you know, that they're, they, they maybe walk with the Lord, but not as closely or something. But here with this man, we see that his sons walked in the ways of the Lord in equal supply and measure for himself. So how does he do it? How does this man successfully raise his kids to become as useful and fruitful as he himself? The answer is this, is that he supplied them with everything that he himself had. Now, on a physical level, that looks like donkeys and villages. But on a spiritual level, it speaks of the substance that's in the heart. And for you and me, by way of application... It's an example of what it means to raise up our children in the things of God. To raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, like Paul tells us to do. How do we do that? We do it by giving them everything that we ourselves have. By as we have experience with the Lord, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Him, as God works in and through our lives, that we then communicate that to them, And we're able to invest in them the same spirit and spiritual things that God himself is investing in us. And if we do that, then what we're going to see is that they're going to come up in our footsteps and they'll be fruitful even as we are fruitful. Now, there's a little bit more to that, and that is this. Is that we cannot ever give to our kids that which we do not have ourselves. And therefore, it's essential if we're going to give it to the next generation that we ourselves have it and that we're continually growing in it. A walk with God is not an education that we receive at some point in our past and then it just stays with us forever and we just pass it on to the next generation. But rather, a walk with God is something that's moment by moment, minute by minute, and it's a life of fellowship with Him. 
And that's what we impart to our kids. And if we don't have it, we can't give it. And so Jair is a great example to us of, uh, of raising up our kids and, and being a faithful witness to the next generation. So with Tola and Jair, we see defense and discipleship. And again, Jair is a great picture of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Here's why. Because how does Jesus raise us up to be like he is? He gives to us everything that he himself has. What did Jesus say? He said, all things that I have received from the Father, I have given and made known to you. And so Jesus is seeking to conform us into his image. And to do that, he gives us everything that we need. And now we have to be able to do that for the next generation of those that come, that they might also know him as well. And so we see these two somewhat minor judges that make a major impact on the nation of Israel. But notice what happens as soon as these two quiet leaders pass off the scene. Verse 6. It says, Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sihon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now this is the sixth apostasy of the children of Israel during this period of the judges. And what we see is that this is the beginning or the rebellion phase of another sin cycle as they turn away from the Lord. And this is a big one, and here's why. Because it tells us seven areas where they served false gods. And if you look at a map and compare it with the regions of the gods that he mentions there in verse 6, what you'll see is that they served the gods of the north, the south, the east, and even the sliver of west that would be the Gaza Strip, the Philistines. And so they gave themselves to everything that God had already delivered them from. And it's a, it's a sign of apostasy. And any time, and this isn't the first time that we've seen them do this, any time that you turn away from the Lord, you can expect that rebellion will always result then in retribution, which we see in verse 7. Notice, it says, So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. And from that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over Jordan to fight against Judah also. So they penetrate the heart of the land. They come into the heart against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that Israel was severely distressed. It tells us that the enemies of Israel were raised up, and then it says that they harassed and oppressed them. In the NIV, it uses the words uh, that they shattered and crushed them. And it tells us that this persisted for 18 years. Now, I don't know how stubborn you have to be to wait 18 years, but by now these people should know what they need to do. They need to cry out to God. But they wait. They wait 18 years until the point when they can barely take it anymore. I believe that we're at a very critical point in our existence as a nation here. We've existed not even 300 years. And we have never experienced the level of apostasy that we're seeing happen 
you know, as a nation, as, as what's happening in these days. And we've never been sold into the hands of our enemies in a way that we're on the verge of being sold into the hands of our enemies. And I think what's happening right now, what we're seeing, is that some people are beginning to wake up to what's really going on. Some people, even non-believers, are recognizing and realizing that there's a difference between today's world and the world of 25 years ago. That there's been a forsaking of God, and there's even some people that are equating the tragic things that are happening to us now with the fact that our nation has turned its back on God. But that does not mean that our nation is repentant or that we are turning to the Lord. It simply means that we're recognizing that there's a problem. And in a sense, we're at a point, at a junction, where we are being oppressed. We've been oppressed for two weeks or two months. But how long is it going to take before people are willing to repent and cry out to God because they're being shattered and crushed by the things that are going on around them? And we're right at the beginning of what, how long is it going to be? Could it be that we never will turn back to the Lord? Or could it be that there will be 20 years of hell on earth in our country before people will turn back to the Lord? What's it going to be? Here's the problem when you come to this phase that we're at right now as a nation. The problem is this. Is that when you are awakened to the fact that your sin or rebellion against God is the reason for the oppression that you're feeling, you have some very tough decisions to make. Because if you want to see those things reversed or turned around or redeemed, then it also means that you have to turn from the thing that's caused that oppression to come upon you. And that's where it becomes a trick. Because though our nation doesn't want to go through the oppression of being sold into the hands of our enemies, does our nation want to turn from its sins? And that will be the thing that will keep us going down a wrong course if we go down a wrong course. And so it's interesting to see how closely our own condition reflects that of Israel throughout these sin cycles. But it says that they waited for 18 years before they uh, called upon the name of the Lord. Well, the retribution phase of 18 years then turns into the repentance phase that we've seen so many times in verse 10. But notice this time it's a little bit different. It says that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God... And served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and Amalekites and Moanites oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. In other words, God is saying that I've already delivered you from all of the enemies that are presently oppressing you. This isn't the first time we've been down this road, God is saying. Yet, verse 13, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. God says no. You've already asked. I've already delivered you. I'm not going to deliver you again. Now, this is the first time we've seen God say this to the nation. On their sixth time of apostasy. But that's not the end of the story. Watch this. Verse 14. Listen to what God says. He says, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. 
They confess, but God says no. And then God says, I want you to learn a lesson from this one. Call out to the gods that you have chosen to serve. Lean upon the things that you have turned from me to trust in and see if those things have power to deliver you. And here's the point, here's the lesson. Is that only the true and the living God has power to answer and help. Those things that we turn to, to seek false comfort or to, you know, deliver us or to take the edge off or to help us, those things have no power to help us at all. The only being, the only one that does is the true and the living God. And that's the problem with apostasy and with idolatry. Is that the things that pull us away from God have no power to help us when our time of need actually comes. And so God wants them to see that. And so he says to them, look, you call upon the gods that you've chosen to trust in and see if they have power to deliver you. And so the people, they don't give up. They don't turn away. And God knew that they wouldn't. They cry to him again and they confess, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day. And notice what they do finally in verse 16. It says, so they put away the foreign gods from among them. Now here's the point. Is that in this instance, in this time, God doesn't respond simply to an attitude of repentance, but rather he waits for the action. And that's significant. I hope you highlight that in your mind. Is that there have been times in this story and in our lives where God will help us as soon as the attitude of repentance comes to us. That we say, you know what, I need to turn back to the Lord. Like the prodigal son. It says, when the father saw him a great way off, it says he ran to him. And God does that so often. But there are times that God says, let me see some action that's associated with that attitude, and then I'm going to come and help you. That's what he does here. He waits for them to put away the foreign gods to show that their repentance is serious before he actually brings the help. And, and they do. They, they do it. And so notice what it says at the end of verse 16. It says that his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? To realize the fact that our sin brings grief to the heart of God. And not only because it's sin, but because of what that sin does to us. It is a fact that our sin, you and me as New Testament Christians, has been completely washed away on the cross of Christ. Our justification or our righteousness does not stand in our ability to keep and do God's law or God's will. We are justified and righteous because of what Jesus did and, and, and our faith in that finished work of the cross. And our name is written in the book of life because of Christ and not because of us. We understand that. However... When you and I sin, when we say, okay, well, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, and so therefore I'm going to just, you know, relax a little bit and go down a path that is wrong or that's sinful, here's what happens. It doesn't mean that our name is blotted out of the book or that we need to get saved again. Salvation's a gift. It's given to us. However, the effects and the fruit of that sin are still going to happen. You understand? Paul said, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. And so when we sow sinful seeds, we're going to reap the grief that sinful life living brings. You understand? And that is the thing that oppresses and crushes us like they experienced here in this season. And here's the amazing thing. 
is that God doesn't sit back with arms folded or with fingers crossed looking at us with a, 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 you know, the, the angered face of a, a grieved or angry father, but rather his heart is broken. Not only because of the sin and what it cost him, but because of the misery that it causes us as we live through the consequences of what we sowed. It's an incredible picture of a heartbroken father over the wayward ways of a wandering sinner. We see it here. God says his soul could no longer handle the misery that the people were going through because of their sin. And so God responds, and he's going to work. But notice in verse 17. It says, Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. So the enemies of Israel now congregate in an area with a posture of aggression against Israel. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. So the battle lines are being drawn. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So what we see is that the battle lines are being drawn. God is on the side of his people yet again. But there is no judge or head or captain to deliver them in this time. Isn't it interesting? I don't know if you've experienced this or just is just me. But sometimes God's heart or posture towards us is that he wants to help us. He hears our prayer, he responds to our cry, and he's going to work, he's going to move on our behalf. But then, in appearance, the situation seems to get worse. You ever have that happen? You've prayed, you've asked, you've repented, you've done everything right, and and now you really believe, God, you're going to move, but all of a sudden the situation looks ten times worse than it did a day ago. That's exactly what happens here. That they repent, they put away the foreign gods, they look up expecting deliverance, and they see their enemies lined up against them. And they think, oh my, now we're up against a wall and we've got no help, there's not even a deliverer. But God is on the move. He's on the move for them. And listen, he's on the move for you and I. Even if it doesn't seem like it yet, God is on the move. Notice what happens, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, but... He was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob, and worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. Now, right off the bat, we see how Jephthah reflects for us a facet of Christ, or reflects or gives to us a picture of Christ. What we see is that he was a mighty man, but he had a questionable heritage. We're told that he was the son of a harlot, that he was looked upon as an illegitimate son. Thirdly, it says that he was rejected by his brothers. They said, you're not going to have an inheritance among us. And so they drove him out. And what we see then is that he was willing to receive worthless men, as they're called here in the scripture, to himself, uh, that, that he would go out and raid. And the idea is that they would raid the camp of the enemy. They would go into the camps of the Ammonites and they would raid them or destroy or spoil the camp of the enemy. So a mighty man, questionable background, rejected by his brothers, who raided and spoiled the camp of the enemy. Can you see the picture? 
That's exactly what happened with Jesus. In his lineage, there was two harlots, an adulterer, Gentiles. And even his very parents were questioned for their morality and how Jesus was conceived. He was looked upon as illegitimate. The Jews accused him of being born of fornication in John chapter 8. That is, you're illegitimate. You don't count. And thus, he was rejected by his brothers. The Jews declared with one voice, they said, we will not have this man rule over us. And so he was cast out, a mighty man. Questionable background, cast out. So what did he do? He went to the last, the lost, and the least. He raided or spoiled the camp of the enemy, and he drew to himself a band of people, worthless men. Guess who that is? It's us. And so Jephthah, a beautiful picture of who Jesus is right here in these opening verses as we are introduced to him. But before we move on, I'm greatly encouraged by God's selection of this man. So often we see the the unchosen attributes of our past or someone's past as things that disqualify them from being used mightily of God. See, Jephthah had no control over the fact that his mother was a prostitute. He didn't choose that. And because of that, he was rejected and cast off and no doubt thought, I can never be anything great or have anything great because of my background and what I am. But isn't it just like the Lord to look for that person that's been outcast, that's been rejected, that has a past that nobody else would choose, and God raises that person up and says, I can use this as a trophy of my grace, and I'm going to do something mighty with this man, Jephthah. I know I often can relate to that. You know, I look at people that have, uh, you know, a well, you know, groomed family landscape. They, They were brought up in a whole, complete, wholesome environment and home. They were well-educated. They were well-off. They had the best of resources. They never had a time of rebellion where they kind of went off the deep end and and sin. And and sometimes I look at them and think, well, I could never be what I could have been had I had that kind of background. Do you know that God looks at that and he laughs? Because God is able to take a Jephthah. God is able to take anyone with any background, no matter what it is, and he's able to qualify them. Because God doesn't call the qualified, God qualifies the called. And when we choose Him and set our hearts right before Him, there's no limit on what He can do with us. So be encouraged tonight, no matter what your background is, where you come from, no matter what you did prior to coming to Christ, none of those things disqualify you of being greatly used of God. Even as Jephthah was chosen, raised up, and used, so also we have that same uh, potential. But getting back to Jephthah as a picture of Christ, we see that those that had previously rejected him now are going to come to him. Watch this, verse 4. It says, It came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you now come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we've turned again to you now. 
that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head, your leader? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So those men that had rejected Jephthah when he was growing up in his father's house now recognize the value and the leadership and the qualities that this man has. And in their time of need, they realize there's no one more qualified to do what needs to be done right now than this man Jephthah. And so they go and find him and they beg for him to return. And I love the interaction that they have with him here because basically he calls them on it. He says, look, you rejected me. You threw me out. You said I'm not going to have an inheritance among you. And now you're asking for me. And the people said, yep, you're right. And he says, but the only reason you're asking for me is because you need me, not because you like me. And the people said, yep, uh-huh, you're right. We have a need. You're the man that can meet the need. And so he calls them on it. They're honest with him. And then he says this, and I love it. He says, okay, I'll come under one condition. You've got to make me your head. You've got to make me your Lord. If you make me your Lord, I will come and I will help you with your need. Now, I love this. Sometimes you'll hear me ask the question, and I ask it frequently because I think it's an important question to be asked. And that's this. Why are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus because of what you need from him or because of who he is? That's an incredibly important question to ask yourself often. Why am I following the Lord? Why am I here tonight? Is it because of who he is, because I want to know him, because I want to be in his presence and around his people? Or is it because I have some need, something I hope to receive from Him? What's the motivation for the reason why we're in the Lord or we come to the Lord? I know that there are some people that come to Christ because they are so moved by what He did upon the cross that they immediately fall in love with Him and they can't resist but receive that gift and come into that relationship. But that's not true for everyone. That wasn't true for me. See, I didn't love the Lord the first minute I got saved. My story is that I screwed up my life real bad. (laughs) I mean, real bad. And I got to a point where I looked at all of my options, and I believed in who Jesus was and what Jesus says he'll do. And I came to Jesus, and I said, Look, I've really blown this. And I'm up against a wall right now that's about to fall on top of my head, and I need your help. And you know what the Lord said to me? He said, You think I'm going to help you now? You've rejected me for all these years. For five years, I've been sending my servants to talk to you about who I am and what would happen if you didn't come. And now you've come to that point and you're going to come to me and ask me if I'll save you now? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay. I'll save you. One condition. I become the Lord of your life. I'll fall on my head. Okay, I'll do it. 
I'll sign up. Where do I sign up? And I entered into covenant with Jesus on those terms. Here's what happened. He saved me. He began working in my life. He began rewiring my heart and my mind. He began making me new inside. He washed away all of my sins, and he delivered me from that wall that was looming over my head. In the process, I came to trust him and know him and love him in a way wherein I would have been a fool if I had ever rejected him. And that's exactly what happens here with Jephthah. He says, okay, you need help, and that's why you're coming to me. I'll accept that on one condition. Make me your Lord. Now, here's the application of it for you and I. We, without him, die. We screw up our lives. We make a mess of things. And yet, then we come to him in that time of need, and he doesn't cast us off. He accepts. He lets us come to him under those terms, but he still says, you've got to get saved. You've got to make me the Lord of your life. Now, when we do that, here's what he does. He begins working in our lives, and he changes us. Now, listen to this. This is the most important thing I'm going to say tonight. He changes our attitude towards him from being that of one of need to being that of one of love. I'm not following you, Lord, because of what you're going to do for me or even what you are doing for me or what I hope that you'll do for me. I'm following you because I've come to know you. And in coming to know you, I've tasted of your love. And I've found that there's no other thing anywhere, anywhere in this universe that compares with who you are and the love that you give. And he knows that's going to happen. And so he says, okay, you want to come on the terms of you need help? I'll come help you. But in the process, you're going to come to love me because I love you. And that's the heart of the Lord. And we see it here uh, pictured so incredibly with this. But notice also that Jephthah in verse 11, he makes a private word public. I'll read it again in verse 11. It says, Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people, made him head and commander over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So he takes a private proclamation and he makes it a public declaration. That is also a very important part in our coming to our judge, our savior, our hero, Jesus. See, many of us, we make a private decision in our heart we choose him maybe watching television or hearing a plea for salvation on the radio or for me i was just driving in my car and i said god if you don't save me i'm gonna die you know and we come many different ways and oftentimes it's in the privacy of our heart but at some point that private declaration has to be a public proclamation at some point to make it known to go on record and say jesus you're my lord and i'm not ashamed of it And so, Jephthah, they do that here. Now, it's a great picture of Christ as we see this man reflecting who Jesus was. We see Jephthah, uh, the the, the reflection, but now we look at Jephthah, the man, as we move on from verse 12 and onward. Now, I like Jephthah, the man. He's strong. We're going to find that he's spiritual. We're going to see that he's very, very wise. He's clear-headed and very calculated. Not perfect, as we'll see at the end of the chapter. No doubt all of those things are the byproduct of the troubled life that he had lived. But we like him. Watch him. Verse 12. Notice. It says, Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? First thing he does is he takes a shot at diplomacy. He sends a message to the king of Ammon, and he says, What's your beef? 
Why is it that you're troubling me that you want to fight against me? And he tries to bring him into a dialogue here and hopes to resolve this thing peacefully without the shedding of blood. Notice the response of the king in verse 13. It says, And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore those lands peaceably. Here's the conditions. You want me to back down, Jephthah? You don't want to go to war? Then I want my land back. Land for peace. Do you recognize that that's nothing new with Israel and its enemies? You give us land and we'll give you peace. That's what we want. We want our land back. We're going to talk about this in a few minutes. But do you know that land for peace between Israel and its neighbors, goes all the way back to the days of Abraham. Even Abraham had to deal with that, with Abimelech and the well that he dug. And then Isaac had to deal with it. And then their descendants. And and, and throughout all of history, even to the present day, and until Jesus comes, that's always going to be the story with Israel and her enemies. Land for peace. Well, Jephthah, verse 14, doesn't accept the terms, and notice what he says. It says, So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. And he said unto him, and now here comes the history lesson. Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. So that's his premise. We didn't take anything from you. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of Arnon, But they did not enter the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. Now, if you look up at the screen, you'll see a map of everything that Jephthah just described. When Israel came up out of Egypt, you'll see in the bottom left-hand corner, they ended up in the place called Kadesh. And from there, they needed to find passage into the land of Canaan, which would then become uh, what would be Israel, the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, they wanted to pass through Edom. You'll see right there above Kadesh, that big circular yellow or orange blob there. You know, they wanted to pass through Edom to come to the land, so they asked for permission. Edom said no. And so they sent messengers then to Moab, which is the land mass right above Edom. But Moab said no. And so then they sent, you know, they they encamped, they moved, and you follow the line up to the border of uh, Edom and Moab, and then they moved up again to the top of the north side of Moab there, and that's the Arnon that it's speaking of there in verse 18 where they encamped. So they come to Arnon, and then they send a messenger to, notice verse 19 now. It says, then Israel sent messengers to Sihon. King of the Amorites. Now, circle that if you have your Bible handy. If you don't, at least make a mental note. Because the Ammonites, who are oppressing Israel, were not 
the owners of the land. It was the Amorites that owned the land at that time. And so Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. So notice Israel's position. It's been a position of peace. They sought a peaceful passage through Edom. They were denied. They obliged. They sought peaceful passage through Moab. They were denied. They obliged. Then they sought peaceful passage from Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and he denied. So three times they tried to do things peacefully and they were denied access three times with absolutely no retribution whatsoever. Now, one more thing before we see what happens next, because this struck me, and maybe you're thinking the same thing I was thinking when you look at that map, is that why didn't they just go to the left instead of the right? I mean, Edom said no, so why didn't they just go up through Canaan? You know, cross through, why didn't they just do it that way? And, and I scratched my head as I, you know, looked at that and, and thought about it, like, you know, man, that's a lot of miles to travel on foot, when, when you could just swing a left there, hang a louie, and you could end up right in the land. But here's the answer. Is that they were being led by a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. Is that God was ordaining the steps and the path that they were to take. And that was the direction that God led them to go. And here's the application of that for you and for me. Sometimes, in God's sovereign, all-knowing will and His ways, which are always good, He takes us the long way to where we're going. And that can be extremely discouraging, can't it? In fact, when you read Numbers 21, which is the testimony of what took place, what you discover is that the people were much discouraged because of the way. It was long, it was arduous, it was tough travel. They had to go a long way to go all the way around that way. But yet, it was God's will that they went that way. Because He's going to use it to give them an inheritance and bless them with the land, all that exists on the east side of the Jordan River. He had their good in mind, but it caused difficulty in the immediate. And oftentimes, that's what happens to us. We say, God, why can't this just be over now? I mean, if I just make this quick move here to the left, things could be done. I could be in. The inheritance could be mine. But God says, that's not the way I'm leading you. It's going to take a little bit longer, but you've got to trust me. I know what I'm doing in this. So God leads them up around. They send messengers to Edom, messengers to Moab. Now a message to Sihon. Now notice what Sihon does in verse 20. It says, But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. So Sihon attacks Israel. Here, in this thing. Israel did not attack them. Sihon attacked Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. It was the Amorites, not the Ammonites. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? 
And now he's going to give, after giving the history lesson of what took place, he's going to give three reasons why the king of Ammon is out of his mind. Verse 24. He says, will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So, whatever the Lord, our God, takes possession of before us, we will possess. In other words, I'm not giving you the land that God has delivered to us. We didn't attack them. They attacked us, and we took the land. Now, what about you? When your God led you into battle, and of course it's tongue-in-cheek, Chemosh is not a real God, but he's saying, you're not going to take land that you accredit your God is given to you and give it to someone else. So why would you ask us to do that? This is just the way the world works. If there's a battle and the oppressor loses and his land is taken, his land is gone. That's just, that's, it is what it is. Verse 25, argument number two. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Now, Ammon and Moab were brothers. They were both descendants of Lot. They were brothers. And he basically says, look, Moab didn't give us any trouble. So are you better than Moab? Why are you just, you're barking up a tree, step off, is basically what he says. And then argument number three, verse 26. He says, while Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, and Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years... Why did you not recover them within that time? In other words, look, we've been here for 300 years now. We've got some history. And who do you think you are to ask us to relinquish these lands to you now? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, verse 28, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. Now, a couple of quick points of observation here. Number one, notice how much of the word of God Jephthah was familiar with. He knew the history of what had taken place with Moses and how he led the the children of Israel uh, so faithfully, and, and he knew that history. Second of all, it's worthy of mentioning When Israel became a nation in in 1948, there was a vote by the United Nations that established borders and labeled them legally the inhabitants of that land. Now, the land that they occupied at that time, they had purchased. They had moved back and for 50 years they were buying up parcels of land and the land that became the borders of Israel in 1948 was land that they purchased. However... In 1949, and then again in 1956, and then again in 1967, and then again in 1973, and then a couple of times even since then, the enemies of Israel that surrounded them attacked them seeking to destroy and annihilate them and and push them out of existence. In each one of those instances, the aggressor was the neighbor, and Israel ended up broadening its territories. In other words, in the same way that Israel took the land of the Amorites when Sihon attacked, so also Israel has expanded their borders each time their enemies have attacked them in the past 65 years, as we're watching history unfold before us. So what's the point? Here's the point. is that when you see on the news people talk about Israel being in occupied territories, 
The argument that should be given is the same argument that Jephthah gave here to the king of the Ammonites. It's like, look, there's some history. There's a story. God has delivered us this land. The land that we have, we have by deed. We've paid for it. By declaration of United Nations Treaty and by defense. We've only taken what, what's been, you know, uh, offended upon us. And that's been the history of Israel. Land for peace is a big lie. There will never be peace in Israel until the Prince of Peace comes. But God says, my people will never be uprooted from their land again. And so with interested eye, we watch. Now, sadly, we are out of time because the story gets real good in verse 29. In fact, I'll give you a teaser. Not very many churches go through the book of Judges. And I am convinced that the passage where we pause right here is the reason why. It's that controversial. It's that crazy. So read the rest of the chapter from verse 29 all the way to 40. We'll pick up there next week and we'll hopefully also begin chapter 13, which is the life of Samson. So things really get exciting now for a while in Israel's history. What are the lessons for us here tonight? Here's the lessons and the musicians can come. He's our faithful shepherd. He is set to defend and give to us everything that we need that we might continually grow and that we might become more like Jesus. That's what he has for us. That's his will. It's what he died for. And it's the birthright of every Christian. Second of all, our sin grieves the heart of God. Not because he's angry with us, Because he sees what that's going to do. And it hurts him in his heart to see us destroying ourselves. And thus he calls us back uh, completely over and over again. And probably most importantly tonight, leave you with one thought, it's this. Is that there is no such thing as a disqualifying factor. If you're willing to give your life completely to him, he's willing to give himself completely to you. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. Seeking those whose heart is set completely towards him, that he might show himself strong on their behalf. And the Lord is just looking for someone, anyone, regardless of your background or what you've done, someone who will put their faith, their trust completely in him, that he might bless them. So may God encourage our hearts tonight. May we find ourselves in him. And may we run with patience the race that's set before us in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the word. We thank you for what you told us. We thank you that you're faithful to lead and guide. We thank you, Lord, that there's nothing too hard for you and that there's no one out of your reach. So, Father, I pray you take the things that we heard tonight, that you'd apply them to us, that you would cause us to rejoice in who you are and in what you've done. We thank you so much for your great love that you who did not spare your own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more will you not now with him freely give us all things? And so, Lord, we pray that in our lives, as your spirit continues your work, you would move us from that place of coming to you because of a need to that of coming to you because of your love. And I pray tonight, Lord, if there's anyone here they see the walls of their life coming crashing down around them 
that in their heart of hearts they would know that you truly are the answer and that they would give themselves to you, Lord. Please, Father, reveal yourself to each one of us and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you. Send us forth full, O Lord, complete in Christ Jesus, the world behind us, the cross and glory before us. We love you, Lord. Strengthen us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.